the optimal life. Julie, how are you? I'm doing well. It's good to be here. It's good to have you. So I want to get into it. I'm looking at your website, juliehalltherapy.com. And one of the things that you are as a certified prepare and enrich instructor, mm-hmm. and you're mm-hmm. walking couples through not counseling necessarily after, which I'm sure you do do a lot of that after the marriage, but this is even more interesting. You're walking engaged couples through the premarital process. Talk to us about that. What exactly is that? Well, you know, I think that couples can, you know, they can certainly be in their relationship and they can get excited about the wedding and there's a lot of hype um, and um, investment in the wedding day. And then couples can find themselves in a place where, okay, now we're married and now what? Right. And so premarital counseling is something that I would recommend for any couple that is in a committed relationship that is looking to move their relationship forward. And what it, you know, the way that I navigate premarital counseling, we can do it in all kinds of different formats, but prepare and enrich this kind of assessment. Um, it really sort of takes couples through particular topical areas that wouldn't necessarily come up organically, right? Things like how do we navigate finances? How do we navigate, you know, the, the different family upbringings that we have? How does that, how could that potentially impact the way that we move forward as far as our unique family life, right? And, um, what are the different kinds of communication styles that we have? How could those communication styles potentially be problematic? How could they actually serve us well? So what I love about Prepare and Enrich, that particular kind of way of moving through premarital counseling is that it helps us kind of tap into these really important topical areas that, again, wouldn't necessarily come up in just sort of organic conversation. So I assume that you have kind of a, a standard template when it comes to the premarital stuff, because there, most people are coming into you, everything's great. So you right. Just, right, you're starting in, in a very, everyone's kind of starting in that same place of blissfulness and joy and right. you can't wait that overall. So do you kind of have a, a, a general template for people that you ask them this question, this question, this, and, and then try to figure out like what needs to be focused on? And if you do take, give us some examples of what you're talking about. Well, yeah, it's a great question. Through Prepare and Enrich, we actually have couples um, complete an assessment. And the assessment's pretty thorough. It's about, you know, it takes generally an hour and we ask each individual in the couple to complete the assessment on their own separately. Um, And then those results come back to me. And I then get basically um, a, you know, a printout of, the results of, you know, the assessment and how those results then kind of impact how that relationship um, moves forward. So what comes up to the surface for me are potential problem areas, right? Where we might notice that, you know, there are real differences in the way that they view these particular areas, right? How much time we want to invest in family, how we look at finances, right? How we look at, 
you know, intimacy, our sexual relationship. So those are the things that then kind of bubble up to the top. And that's where I really spend my time with that couple. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And that example of sexual intimacy, let's go with that one, for example. Sure. So you see that one partner looks at it one way, maybe very open. They are romantic. They want to be touched, held, loved. They want all that. And you're realizing the other partner isn't so keen on that. They're a little more closed off. They uh, don't care about being intimate all the time. So when you see something like that and you're doing your assessment, what what do you say to the, like, where do you go from there? Um, Well, yeah, you know, I I think it's really important to just be um, really honest and direct about what the assessment is showing and how I see that this could be a potential issue for the couple. And we talk about, you know, just again, the, the way that I really try to approach it is, is really from a lens of curiosity, no judgment, right? And just staying really curious with them about how they might see that this could potentially impact, you know, their committed life together, how they've maybe seen it show up in their relationship up to this point, mm-hmm. right? And then we talk about what has brought them to these places, Right. So, you know, in this example, the person that's particularly closed off, where did that come from for them? Right. And we really try to, again, just bring, um, you know, more sort of bring up more of the story for, you know, the couple and that the way and and the the intention there as far as as far as just kind of opening up more space is that the more that I start to understand about my partner, the more empathy it brings right? The more that it helps me, you know, want to what I language is co-create with my partner. How do we co-create something that's unique for us in which we both feel seen, we both feel cared for. Um, But these are conversations that are generally most effective with, you know, somebody who has done this kind of work with couples, because it can be really difficult and really charged to do it just on your own. Yeah. And yeah. I would think that the, the, the positive aspect of doing the premarital stuff is to at least open up the communication lines, set the stage, because once you're in the marriage and you start bringing kids in and all the responsibilities, and you mentioned finances and work and balance and family, it doesn't get easier. I mean, it, it sure only doesn't. gets harder. So <laughs> I, it sounds like you're almost kind of just setting a foundation hey, here's what you guys need to be mindful of. Here's where you might have some differences and just allow them to kind of open up to that so that they they go in eyes wide open. A hundred percent. And I think even just the conversations themselves help build up for the couple, their sense of empathy for themselves, for one another, their communication styles, which can only serve you when things just get harder. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, curious, have you ever had a couple that you're tra- you're helping them through and you're realizing they, they, they're realizing, oh, my God, we have all these differences and it, it kind of ca- causes them to call off a marriage? Has that ever happened? No, it hasn't. It, has um, it hasn't, you know, and that's not to say that that can't happen, um, but that hasn't happened for me. And I though I have had, um, you know, couples really 
you know, recognize some pretty significant roadblocks for themselves, mm. right? That then just require them to just continue with the therapeutic process post marriage. And I would really recommend that for all couples, um, giving yourself just an opportunity to take some time to focus on each other and check in with one another. Hey, how are we doing here? Right. And talk about it with a third party, a professional. Beautiful. Um, beautiful. Yeah. This is also interesting. Something, one of your other areas of expertise is the, uh, the fertility stuff. Yeah. And that's gotta be something that's extremely emotional for people struggling to conceive. Talk yeah. a little bit about what your type of work you're doing with them and how you even got into that? Yeah, that's a great question, Nate. Um, you know, I'll take you back a little ways. Um, even just coming into this field of therapy um, was really brought about because of my own personal experience with infertility. Um, I was in the tech sector for over a decade um, before I went into the field of therapy. And what had happened was I was working with a reproductive endocrinologist um, with my partner. And uh, he, he basically kind of slipped me the, the business card of a therapist who worked um, side by side with him in his practice, helping couples really talk through the mental health, emotional health aspect of infertility. And to be honest with you, I was a little bit offended because at the time I was just navigating so many things biologically and with my body that to hear that maybe I had to address some mental health, emotional issues, it just felt like too much. It felt unnecessary, but I went. I went and it was like the floodgates opened. Let me just stop you real quick, Julie. Please. Real quick. So yeah. how long how long were you trying to conceive for at this point? Yeah. Um, I probably about two years, maybe. Two years. Wow. Yeah, two years. So two, two years, years and you're still offended, but you're sticking to yourself, well, what do I have to lose? Whatever. It's been a long time already. Right. And I think there was something intuitive within me that said I could potentially benefit from this, okay. you know? And so I went and like I said, it, it was, it was as if the floodgates opened. I just had never had an experience like that before in which the person across from me was asking these kinds of pointed questions that helped me open up, um, you know, areas within me that I hadn't addressed, you know, at the time that I was um, trying to conceive, my sister had had three children. And so there just that, you know, um, that juxtaposition, you know, there was just so much emotionally there that I had not processed, right? I hadn't processed because that's not something that you can necessarily see. And I kind of tucked it away. And culturally, therapy wasn't something that, you know, was affirmed for me, right? So what, what, Julie, when you say that your sister had three children, are you implying that it was making it even harder on you because she was able to conceive and you weren't? That's right. That's uh, right. That's okay. right. That's right. That's right. You know, I think as much as I was happy for her and her children were like my own, it, you know, in some ways was a mirror to my own experience, right. Of what I couldn't, you know, I couldn't make happen, you know, in my mm. own relationship with my own family. So there was just so much there that I hadn't put language to. And so this experience really helped me put language 
to what I was experiencing. And it was just a very, it was just very powerful. It was very powerful. And it really led me on my own journey of wanting to be that kind of support for for people who are navigating infertility, because at the time that I was navigating it, it didn't feel like there were a lot of resources out there. So, yeah. So so what, what exactly are you doing then for these couples? So when I, when I meet with couples who are navigating infertility, um, we're talking about things like grief, right? We're talking about what it's like to, you know, be in spaces where, we can be triggered and activated, right? When you see someone, you know, there's there's all kinds of ways that, you know, someone who's navigating infertility can be activated or triggered, right? Whether it be seeing somebody's, you know, someone walking down the street with their pregnant belly, right? Whether it be, you know, getting a, a baby shower invite, whether it be hearing, you know, Another uh, a Facebook post, another Facebook post with a boy or girl and you got right, it. announcing this. We're 20 weeks, the whole thing. Yeah. You got it. Right. And so what can happen is that we tuck it away and we don't necessarily address it or put language to it. And so the, the therapeutic practice is recognizing, oh, I'm triggered right now. I'm activated right now. What are the feelings that are really coming up for me? Let me name those feelings. Who are the safe people that I can actually talk to about this so that I don't feel so alone? What are some of the boundaries perhaps that I have to put in place that are just going to be important for me, right? And moving through this, maybe I don't go to those six showers, right? This summer, maybe I go to one or maybe I choose to not go to them and instead just do something that feels restorative for me, right? What feels the healthiest for me to practice in order to kind of navigate this well. Let me ask, that's an interesting point. Why are we so like predestined or uh, that's not the right, pre-programmed. We're always trying to do right by others. We're invited to this shower. you got five showers. You, you can't have a baby. You keep going to each shower. You feel worse and worse each time, but you don't want to upset them. So you want to be a part of it. Meanwhile, you're destroying your own mental health. I know. Why it. do we do that to ourselves? Uh, you know, I don't know. There are a lot of different reasons. I think it can be just a place in us that is programmed to um, kind of tuck away any emotional pain, right? That that maybe is a sign of weakness or uh, vulnerability that um, we shouldn't pay attention to, right? I think there's generational sort of history of that, that we don't address, you know, emotional challenges, right? And so we just kind of tuck those away. I think it can be difficult for us to recognize the things that we need to take care of ourselves. It's just not something that historically we've perhaps prioritized. Mm. And so it's I think it's a it's a powerful, healthy movement that's really coming forward for us to recognize what it means to care for self first. Absolutely. So as you are helping these people care for self. Yeah. Uh, do you what what ultimately do you believe that the mental aspect, the emotional aspect that you're helping them through, actually has some direct impact on allowing them to conceive? You know, there's a lot of research out there. I don't think the research has indicated that um, 
you know, there's necessarily a direct correlation between, you know, fertility rates and, you know, mental health or that the research isn't necessarily there, at least as far as I know, or even stress and fertility rates. I mean, you can make these kinds of indirect correlations. I think overall, though, um, when we are in, you know, healthier spaces, it just kind of opens us up, you know, to um, healthier relationships with our partners, you know, family, I wouldn't necessarily say that there's a correlation there, um, that I've seen. Um, okay. but it can only be helpful. It but it, yeah, it cannot helpful. hurt. Yes. Cause again, you mentioned stress and I'm sure stress has to have some kind of impact on, on the body when it comes to so many different aspects and why would conception be any different than anything else? I mean, stress is, is devastating to us in so many different ways. So it's point, true. How can it's it not true. help? How it's can, true. Yeah. 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 So when you're working though, with the, these people, you're, you're also working with the, the uh, male partner, if it's a male yeah. female relationship and the woman's trying to conceive, correct? Yeah. I mean, the, male, the male is probably just as much two years into it. Not only Julie uh, having problems and struggles and stress, obviously her partner's having struggles and stress. So what That's are some right. of the things you're helping them with? Well, you know, I think with the, the partner, I think it can be particularly unique in that, you know, oftentimes the partner is wanting to be that kind of support for, you know, their partner who's actually kind of navigating the fertility and there's a helplessness to it, right? There's a helplessness when you can't make things better for your partner. There's um, it's, it's really difficult. And often that male partner wants to be that person who can make things better. And so we want to unpack for the partner, those experiences, right? What it means for you to feel a kind of helplessness. What is also your own grief? Mm. You know, I think it can be really difficult for partners to, um, hold one another in this space because they're both navigating the pain of whether it be pregnancy loss or infertility. Right. And so, you know, I think it's really also just important for the partner to put language to their own emotional experience. And often that's harder to uncover because the partner's like, well, you know, I just want to be there for them and I just want to be right. And so it takes a little bit more time to really tap into what has this been like for you? Sure. Right? You know, and what has been the impact of this just on you? What do you notice for yourself? Right. Yeah. Um, that, that makes a lot of sense. So let me ask, have yeah. you ever had somebody that ultimately could not conceive on their own? Yes. Through all the th right. So through all the yes. therapy. So at some point, yes, it's, that's gotta be a tough conversation for you. Cause you're sitting across from them and you're saying, Hey, it's been three years. It's been two and a half, three, four years. Like, like, I, I don't know if this is, you know, there's going to the doctor, they're getting medical opinions. Can we conceive? Maybe not. That's gotta be a tough conversation. And when you have to sit there and deal let, and when they finally realize, Hey, we're not going to be able to conceive on our own. Where do you, how do you help them out through that part? Absolutely. Um, well, you know, I, I think there's a very unique experience that, you know, a couple has with their mental health provider as opposed to their medical 
provider, right? And the person that's actually helping them navigate fertility from that, the medical side. Um, I think from the mental health profession, what's really important for me is to um, help the couple um, certainly tap into the impact of their sense of self, right? How is this journey impacting how they see themselves, right? And because we really want to care for that, right? That narrative, right? That this doesn't make me any less of a human, right? This, you know, who, who am I, right? Still, what do I still embody in the midst of something that I have so desperately wanted, right? So really helping them tap into just their understanding of their sense of self. And then, you know, what I always say is there's kind of this inverse direct relationship between anxiety and empowerment. And what I mean by that is generally the more empowered I feel, the less anxious I am, right? Generally, the more empowered I feel, the less anxious I am. Generally, the less empowered I feel, the more anxious I am, right? So I really try to help the couple tap into how they can still be empowered in this place, right? What could, what could empowerment still look like for them, right? Mm. You know, and, and the more that we tap into that, the more that we help them put language to empowerment, I think the more it eases their own sense of anxiety. It's got to be, uh, you have, you're in one of the most rewarding careers because you're helping people. <laughs> and it's got to be so rewarding when you help people recover or mitigate the 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 stress that trauma has caused or mitigate these triggers. And that's gotta be such a nice feeling to see somebody that comes into your office and then six months, a year later has really changed with your guidance. But at the same time, you have to have some of the most gut wrenching conversations on the flip side of the coin. So how do you handle your own mental health, Julie? Because (laughs) therapists need their own therapists. That is so true. Um, well, I, I do have a therapist um, and it's really important. I think for me, particularly, you know, when COVID hit, you know, and you've probably heard this a ton, right. But I think as a mental health provider, um, my caseload shot up, um, you know, the levels of anxiety and depression that were being diagnosed um, skyrocketed, right? If you were already experiencing depression, anxiety, some level of trauma or challenge in your relationship, all of that was exacerbated. Um, So it is important for me to check in with my own mental health, right? And to certainly, you know, to the extent possible, really be boundaried in, um, in just how I move in my spaces. There's only a certain number of clients that I see per day, per week, um, you know, and what I always say is that I, I cannot work harder than my client, mm. right? And so I really don't take any credit, you know, not that the therapeutic space isn't helpful, but, you know, therapy is really only as effective as um, what a client brings, you know? And so my intention really is to just, again, kind of open up space. I, 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 I say that I have my three C's and my three C's are, curiosity, compassion, and then courage. And so we start with really just these questions that we ask, this kind of curiosity, right? What's really going on? And then as we start to put language to those responses, how do we then um, 
look at those responses with compassion? How do we start to hold those responses with compassion? And as we start to hold those responses with the compassion, it lends itself to change, right? And change takes courage. It takes courage for us to, to practice new moves. So all that being said is, I, I really, again, I, tr I try not to work harder than a client. And so really it is kind of what a client brings, right? But, um, but it is very tender, you know, it's very vulnerable, emotional space, you know? And so, um, you know, emotionally charged space generally, especially when we're talking about trauma. Yes. And, you know, I've heard a beautiful definition of trauma. It's anything that happened to us that was either too much, too long too much, too fast, or not enough too long. And so for the most part, all of us have experienced something. Let's like say, that. say that again, Julie, because the listeners are going, Hey, I, I, I'm trying to figure out what you just said. Too fast, too yes, long. Let's break it, break down each one. If you would. Of course. So this definition comes from um, an author. He's incredible. He's also a therapist. His name is Resma Menicum. He wrote a book called my grandmother's hands. And the definition that he has of trauma is anything that happened to us that was either too much too fast, too much too long, or not enough too long, where we did not receive adequate support and care. Mm. Okay, so, so the first one was too, too much too fast. Too much too fast. What's an example? Too much too fast could be... Um, something like uh, a sudden event, a sudden event, um, a sudden unexpected event. Exactly. Okay. Uh, so you're, you, you get a phone call that your loved one has died in a car accident. That's right. way too much, too fast. That's right. That's okay. Right. What's the se second one? Too much, too long, right? Too much too long. So too much, something too long. like COVID. COVID, right. Yeah, something like we're watching a loved one slowly deteriorate for years and years and years. That's exactly right. That's mm -hmm. exactly right. Yeah. That so what true. that creates for us. And yeah. then not enough too long could be something like, you know, um, adult clients really tapping into their childhood experience of not experiencing the kind of love and care that they longed for from a caregiver. Oh. Not enough too long. Not enough too long. Interesting. So he says that those are the three types of trauma, or that's, that's how he defines it. Right. Anything that happened to us that was either too much too fast, too much too long, or not enough too long, where mm. we did not receive adequate support and care. You mentioned COVID. Julie, yeah. you mentioned COVID and uh, we're still, we're still living in a COVID world, post COVID world, whatever you want to call it, Sure. but the damage has been done. The collateral damage has been done. Um, and mm -hmm. people are more stressed out, more depressed than I've ever seen. Walk around an airport. There's not a single person smiling. Ooh, uh, wow. that's, people, that's people, people are sad. People are frustrated. People are angry. I see more, road rage, people yelling at each other. I mean, it's just out of control. Of all the things that you've seen, what is the number one thing that people are struggling with the most, the ones that have come to you for your help in this, that, that, that has stemmed from this whole COVID thing? 
Yeah, no, that's a great question, Nate. Um, I have to think about that, you know, and, and I, to, to really provide a thoughtful response. But what comes to mind for me, two things, if I could. Sure. Um, one is a kind of hopelessness, right? Just when will this get better? You know, um, and not knowing what it means to move forward in the midst of this continuing, right? When will things start to look different? And so as this continues, there's just kind of, the, there, there can be kind of this chipping away at our sense of hope. And the second that comes up for me is loneliness. Mm. Just, you know, you know, this kind of isolation, certainly that COVID from a practical perspective um, put in place and it was certainly for safety purposes, but I think there are after effects of that, right? How do we engage with the people in our lives in a way that's meaningful, right? What does it mean for me to, you know, even again, just get honest with the, the, the safe people in my life about what this has been like for me. And, um, you know, again, just giving ourselves permission to just get honest with our safe people, I think that can be difficult and it can, you know, I think exacerbate this place in us that tells us that we are alone and that's really hard. And I've seen studies that say that people that live uh, into their late adulthood lonely, that don't have a, a partner or a mate or friends or social socialism, really that takes a toll on their physical health. That's they don't true. live as long. That's exactly right. I've seen those studies too. It's fascinating. It really is. That it's loneliness. We're, we're meant to be together. Is that right? Like we're meant to be amongst other people. We're not meant to be uh, uh, secluded oh, from the world. Completely. Completely. I think we are relational beings. And I think historically, you know, if you look back in generations, we were living in these kinds of multi-generational homes. And then over the course of the generations, as we kind of, you know, gained more resources you know, families started to get smaller and more insular um, and it's had impact. Right. And That's so I really do, you know, encourage my clients, you know, the people in my life, um, you know, certainly it's something that I just continue to remind myself that it is so important to remember that we don't have to be alone in this world. Right. And, you know, um, there is kind of this collective grief that I think is important for us to recognize. Absolutely. Yeah. Before we get close to finishing off here, um, one other area of expertise you focus on that I found very interesting and unique is this racial trauma category. Yeah, so speak sure. to that. What exactly is racial trauma and, and how are you helping people through that? Yeah. You know, um, I'll, I'll take you back just a little bit, Nate, to my own lived experience, if that's okay. Absolutely. Um, because I think that's, you know, what, again, just brought me um, into this space in a more sort of personalized way. So my background is Indian American. Um, my parents immigrated from India in the 70s. I was born Where in, in India, Julie. Uh, it's called Kerala. It's the, it's the, the southernmost state. Um, in India. I've yeah. been to uh, Delhi and I've, yeah. been to, uh, I've been to Calcutta or Calcutta or everyone pronounces yeah. it differently. 
Kolkata. Amazing. I've heard different pronunciations. Yes. And uh, I think Mumbai as well. I think I was in all three. Um, no for, kidding. Course of about a week. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So my parents actually, yeah. So they immigrated from Kerala, which, you know, if you ever get a chance to go back there, I would really encourage you checking out Kerala because it's very unique and it's very rainforesty and just, um, just a different kind of climate. Um, and, you know, and so, but I was born and brought up in New Jersey. And, um, and so I grew up in a kind of predominantly white suburb. And, um, and so I didn't particularly, um, I didn't particularly have a sense of my own kind of, you know, ethnicity or race kind of as I was growing up. But what I'll tell you is, just recently, in the last five years, um, I was helping my mom clean out uh, the basement of the house that we grew up in. And I found a couple of short stories that I had written. And um, the short stories that I had written, I was, you know, describing myself. But as I was describing myself, I described myself with light brown hair and hazel eyes. Um, certainly, that's not how I look. I, do, I know people are maybe just listening via audio, but um, it really struck me, right? It really struck me as far as how I saw myself, right? That somehow, somehow I had internalized that me in my brown skin, my brown eyes, I couldn't maybe be the heroine of my story, right? What in my world had communicated that to me, even implicitly that I had, I had written myself to look very different than how I look. Right. And so I started to just, I think, even get curious about, um, you know, the history of race in this country. And, you know, certainly, you know, uh, particularly, you know, the racial conversations in this country, it can, can be very heated and very painful. And I started to really explore the Black American experience in this country. And, um, and we started to, I started to read about generational trauma, which essentially means um, the, the kind of pain that we experience over the course of generations and how it then impacts how I see the world around me and how I see myself, mm. how I see myself, what I am capable of, my value. And what right. have you seen, Julie? What's been a common theme amongst the Black American, African American community that you've seen that has been so traumatizing? I think certainly um, a lack of safety in this country, a lack of really believing that, you know, um, that the systems in this country are for them, right, are made to support them. Um, you know, how uh, certainly when we talk about economics, right? Generational wealth, right? How, you know, what has happened over time that has impacted their, the black um, families access to wealth resources, um, you know, but the way that I look at it just as a, you know, a therapist is I, anytime I meet with a client, um, I'm curious just about their experience, right? Their socioeconomic experience, right? Whether you're Black American or White American or Indian American, whether you are an immigrant to this country, I try to really open up that space for curiosity. How has, how you were brought up, what you have seen, how has it shaped how you see 
the world and how you see yourself. Mm. And I imagine that so many of these people don't even realize it, but they probably have self-limiting beliefs. I think that's because of all those things that you mentioned and they just see themselves as this is it. There's no, there's no room for improvement. There's no room for better. There's no room for happiness and better joy and more fulfillment. It's it's uh, and that's gotta be a tough chain to break. Cause you said this is generational generational. I think that's exactly right. And I, I think certainly there's a reality to it, you know, for, for people as far as systems necessarily, not necessarily being, you know, for everyone. And that could be a longer conversation, but I think, yes, self-limiting beliefs. I come back to myself, this idea that I believe that me in, in my actual embodiment, couldn't be the heroine of my own story. Right. Right. Right? You know? And so I think just unlearning that has been incredibly, certainly powerful for me. And so I really do try to learn more about that as a therapist, bring that into the therapeutic space as far as what do I need to unlearn and relearn in order to step into my full empowerment? Last question for you. And then I want to, we'll we'll talk about your website and anywhere else you want people to go to find you. Thank you for this insightful conversation. Extremely informative. Let's circle back. You mentioned that there was two things, two common things of that people are really struggling with in this post pandemic. One was loneliness, but the other was hopelessness. And hopelessness is really, I see a major theme across the board, regardless of where you come from, where you live, your background, et cetera. People that are listening, they're feeling hopeless right now. If they had the opportunity to sit across from you and say, Julie, I am hopeless. What can I do? What would be your answer? Oh, Nate, that's such a great question. Um, to, to be honest with you, you know, when I sit across from my clients, sometimes my role is really to hold hope for them, right? When they are in a space where they can't necessarily hold it for themselves, right? That I can be the person that holds hope for them, that maybe can see what they in their in, in their moment, right? Where they are in that space can't necessarily see for themselves. To be honest, what gives me hope are the clients that I sit across from, right? People ask me what gives me hope, and it's the courage of the clients that I sit across from, right, who step into this space with me and are digging deeper into their own life story, right? They are, they are asking questions. They are struggling, um, you know, in a very real way across from me, and I think we have to go through that in order to get to the other side. So I certainly hold hope for them. I do, again, want to encourage, you know, anybody who is feeling um, a kind of hopelessness to reach for help, Um, reach for perhaps a professional, a therapist, reach for maybe just one safe person in their lives, right? And talk to them. Mm. Right. And just give themselves permission to um, get honest. Right. Yeah. Sometimes, get- sometimes having the conversation with a, a confidant, a close friend, a family member, it doesn't always have to be therapy. You could have no. your own therapy with, with loved one, a loved one that you vibe with, that you trust. Totally. And to just have this kind of common experience. Oh, yeah. You feel that way. I felt that way too. 
Right. Oh my God, you did. You seem so happy. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. And then all of a sudden you feel less alone. Mm. Right. All of a sudden you feel less alone. Right. Yeah. And so it taps into the loneliness piece too. And so I just really encourage, you know, just that stretch, whether it be reaching for a professional, whether it be talking to a loved one. Right. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Hey, uh, this is great stuff. Um, JulieHallTherapy.com. That's where we started the conversation. Anywhere else online you want people to find you? That's probably the best place. You know, you can certainly access me on Instagram too. Um, uh, I, um, is that also Julie Hall Therapy? There's, uh, it's actually Julie V. Hall um, okay. 01. And um, you can find me on LinkedIn so, um, but predominantly my website, um, you can email me at juliehalltherapy, um, at gmail.com. So, um, Beautiful. yeah. And we'll make sure that we link that in the show notes folks. There you have it. Uh, insightful conversation with, uh, a very diverse therapist. You're helping people <laughs> in so many different ways and continue success to you. Oh, thank you, Nate. Thank you for this conversation. <laughs>